HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman and woman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. I'm HRN Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're focusing on water. You'll hear some disturbing news from an NYC investigative reporter. Here lies the problem, how much we don't know about water tanks. Katie Kiefer reports on water woes in the heartland. Their water is heavily polluted with nitrates, which are coming from agricultural chemical applications on fields and running off into their water table. And we'll check in with Dave Arnold, who's about to open a new bar that will serve some pretty fancy H2O. It is hardcore. So pour up a tall glass of ice water and be refreshed by this week's episode of Meat in 3, available on heritageradionetwork.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. And I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode number 110 of Feast Your Ears. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, you have many, many hours of listening to me talk at you through the radio ahead of you if you like the show. Today's theme, soul, is a four-letter word. What is soul? It's a heavy subject. Is it what makes us human? Is it music? Is it even in food? It's all of these things. It's a connection to a place or a person or an experience. For something ephemeral like food to have soul is quite a feat. People have soul. Places have soul. And so it seems do collard greens, especially in the hands of Todd Richards, who's my guest today. We describe someone or something as soulless if it doesn't have anything to share or teach. What we pass along to others in our interactions, our stories, our memories, to me, that's soul. Understanding where you come from, where your parents came from, where your peanuts and collard greens come from, all of this contributes to our lives, our choices, and our perspective. I would argue that soul is one of the most important things to have. More than money, more than objects, when you have soul, it doesn't mean life will be easy, but it gives you purpose, frames your experiences, and makes it meaningful. Growing up in the Northeast, as I did, 
had a short stint in laid-back, blissed-out California. My idea of soul food was ribs, mac and cheese, collard greens. That's what us northerners thought of as southern or barbecue. There was clearly deep tradition behind much of it, but it wasn't my tradition. As I was reading through Soul, Todd's new book, I was struck by the interleaving of his family into the book as well as his cooking. Stories of place and time accompany some of the recipes, and I started to think about my own family cooking through that lens. My grandmother's Jewish-style brisket is soul food. The pork chops from Ed Giobi's book, Italian Family Cooking, was a staple in my mother's cooking, so that's soul food. Matzo balls, Christmas cookies, a mushroom soup recipe my mother handed me when I went to college, my father cooking fresh corn, it's all soul food. These are the things that bind us together, and sharing that knowledge and those meals and all the experiences that tie it all together, that's soul. Todd Richards has been working in and around food for almost two decades, with two James Beard nominations and three restaurants under his wing. Not sure how he found time to put pen to paper, but I'm glad, and you should be too, that he did. At 372 pages, there's plenty of soul in Todd's new book, and its title is a four-letter word. Soul. Thanks, Todd, for making time to join me in the studio today. Thank you for having me. So, the book is beautiful. Um, and I, you know, I was really, I was super excited, um, when I was offered the chance to get to interview you, uh, it came out <laughs> yesterday. So congratulations. Thank you very much. It, it is, uh, quite, quite a feat. Um, you asked, how did I find time? <laughs> my, you know, my wife and uh, family, they were so, uh, important to that episode that she would make sure I had a little bit of dinner and put up with me not being in bed between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. <laughs> you know every night trying to get this book done. So that was your that was your your writing time, huh? That was my writing. House is quiet. Um, yep. You know the birds are starting to wake up around four. Uh, the champagne is uh, even colder it seems <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at that point in time, and it was just a feast of of love. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, without the you know, I, I have a book that came out last year, and I would say the same thing. Without the support of my wife and family, for me, it was the other end of the spectrum. With my young kids, I got up really early, right, right. knowing that the house would be quiet. Right. If I got up at four or four thirty, I would have a few hours to myself mm. in silence. <laughs> um, although my my son was about eighteen months old at the time, and I swear he could hear the laptop open because oh, some man. mornings he would wake up. But <laughs> uh, well, I'm really glad that you did. I'm really glad that you put pen to paper. Um, you know, I've really the, the there's a lot in the book, um, and clearly you've put a lot into it, and it is about your about your family. Um, tell me a little bit about, so you grew up in Chicago. That's correct. I did. I grew, I grew up in uh, south side of Chicago, and we had a unique uh, household because my dad worked uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, 8 p.m. to 8 in the morning. So he did a lot of cooking at home. Uh, every birthday, holiday, Christmas, Kwanzaa—I think we even celebrated Hanukkah a couple of times. <laughs> awesome. You know, uh, just to have a reason to have celebration at the house. Yeah. And so everyone would show up from the neighborhood. One interesting story is my mom went to the store to pick up some stuff for a birthday party that we're having. Met a lady in line, invited a lady in line over. She bought three other people with us. You know, so you know that's just how much celebration we had in um, at home and in just enjoy food and eating constantly. And, you know, in, in the book, you talk a lot about, I mean, you mentioned your mom's cooking multiple times. There's a recipe in there for, for baked eggs. Oh, man. The baked eggs she used to do and the fried catfish. I, it, people have been asking me, what is my favorite recipe? I think that has to be in my top one or two because she will only make it on Friday. 
and made it for my dad who was leaving so she would leave it on the stove and just the, the way it would just crack open and the steam would come out you mm. couldn't even wait for it to cool off you <laughs> wanted to eat it so so fast and then dad will have some and he would just leave like some crumbs on the paper towel from when it was draining out of the oil and you come home and those crumbs in there it's just like eating little fresh, uh, fish popcorn or fish yeah. potato chips <laughs> I mean that to me is the best memory of, of fried catfish yeah so I mean you know like I said in my opening I mean I feel like I feel like this idea of of soul food i mean like everything else in this country we wanted to label it right we wanted Correct. to give it some kind of definition but i mean what you're talking about reminds me of you know what in my jewish upbringing was gribbonus right, right. which is the little fried leftovers when you render out the chicken fat right oh my goodness. <laughs> so right. you know it's it's the same kind of thing with a slightly different background it, it is so you know food is contributes you know to african-american culture and, yeah. and it's really great to to understand that 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 term is in 1960s or 1950s yeah. Term, but that if you just quantify African American cooking to just that one time period, then you're not speaking to anything that came before, nor can you explore and go into the future. And yeah, you know, and there's a lot of great historians out here doing great work with the past and bringing it to the modern. I think I'm the one who's going to say, I appreciate the past, I love the modern, but we have to push it in the future. Absolutely, and and I think that that really comes comes through in your book that you are taking and we, we live in a wonderful moment we live in an amazing moment where people are learning about food people are excited about food and they are taking these notions or ingredients or methods and applying them to new to new things i mean you're you know on you know, very early in the book. I mean, you know, on page 30 is your recipe for collard green ramen. Well, that's a which... very interesting <laughs> recipe that comes out of a lot of different uh, formats. My mom had this intense love for Chinese food. And so we will pick up, you know, uh, Yakimine, which is a Chinese restaurant, 87th and Jeffrey in Chicago. And it's just a noodle soup with a lot of scallions, pork belly, and soft-boiled egg. But my dad, in his frugality, would never throw things away. So the rule is if we picked up something from to-go, we had to you know, cook a leftover or reheat a leftover to go with it. And most of the time, it was collard greens mm. that went with that, that dish. So you have this vinegar from the collard greens, you know, very sharp and acidic, cutting through that broth, you know, about the pork belly yeah. and the soft egg and, and the yolk and everything. And and to me, that's a dish that I've been eating since I was five, six years old that always transcends, you know, a lot of different cultures. Sure. And, and that's what makes it special. And that's what, what soul food is in a modern context. Absolutely. Um, and, and I just, you know, I mean, I, I love the idea of bridging that gap between saying, well, here's, you know, if you look at like intense recipes for ramen broth. Correct. And you look at pot liquor. Correct. They're kind of, they're the same thing. They're they're the exact same (laughs) thing. And then also from the economic standpoint too, that both of those dishes are naturally, well, not naturally, unnaturally, they they take the longest to cook. But in reality, we charge the least amount for them. Yeah. I love in in your plain collard green recipe, you talk about uh, a couple of things that I hadn't ever thought about them, I and I've made plenty of collard greens. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get them obviously here in the in the you know summertime right. in our CSAA box, and oh, I grab a ham hock and mm-hmm. you know make them. But um, you know that historically, that the fat would rise to the top. Yeah. So yeah. And when it cools, yeah, that's it. It protects the dish. I mean, people love duck confit. You know, it's a celebrated French dish. You know, where the fat is protecting the duck, and you have to think 
about you know prior to refrigeration, there was no way to to preserve things. So when the fat fat congealed on top of it, you know, and the stigma that soul food is unhealthy because of the fat, but no one just goes into a pot and just eats a spoonful <laughs> of uh, 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 of fat. So the fat was there to actually to protect everything down down below. Yeah, which absolutely. makes it more technically uh, driven than just a pinch of this or a pinch of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other thing too that I I think that we we lose sight of is when you think about when we look at these you know traditional foods not just soul food but when we look at mm-hmm. a lot of traditional foods and people are saying well I'm going to make a, a low fat version of this or a low salt version of this that makes sense for the modern life right Correct. but historically if you were working in the fields all day yeah and then you're coming and you're having a meal and then you're going back in the fields for another five or six hours and then when you get home you got to chop wood yeah. to keep the house warm you're physically way more active so sure you have a lot of fat because fat is calories correct I think that people have the, just the misnomer of what things are just based off of stereotypes. And yeah. hopefully this book starts to eliminate a lot of those regional stereotypes. Because soul food in the South is quite different than soul food in the North. And if you go out to the West Coast, where you have all these Latin and Asian influences inside yep. of it as well, then you're saying that, well, this food is really an American food. Yeah. And, you know, and it speaks to, to the, the, the promise that we uh, kept for each other that we must have delicious food in this country. I mean, you, you do make a, you know, you make a nod to the fact that the things that we think of as soul food and we know that come out of uh, an African, you know, African-American slave tradition in this country are not the same exact foods, right? That the African tradition is things like biltong and Correct. fufu. It's not, you know, that collards are, didn't come from Africa, no, no, they they didn't, but but it it's really shows how much perseverance that that people have, and to make it delicious too. I, I tell people that to make chitlins taste good, you have to have some kind of genius inside of you to to <laughs> sit there and take an intestine and wash it and clean it and put onions in it and make broth and throw that broth away and put new broth on top <laughs> of it. And I mean, it takes some type of genius in order to not only have survival instincts, but yeah. also to make it taste delicious that, that you still want to eat it, even though it's really at this point in a lot of food ways, it's unnecessary to eat. Right. Absolutely. So where do you think soul food goes next? Soul food in the modern context is really about new exploration and new techniques. My grandmother, who used to make traditional collard greens, you know, on the stove, you know, same ham hock. As she got older, her collard greens changed. She started buying smaller collard greens, incorporated kale and mustard uh, greens uh-huh. inside of them, sauteed them, you know, with just a little bit of bacon, onions, you know, and she used a, a really high quality vinegar. And my grandmother at the time, I guess it was probably around eight or nine, she started using sea salt. So, you know, just to see that, that her progression, now not to say that she never cooked traditional collard greens, yeah. she did, but when it was just her or just us, you know, my cousins over there, she went this route in a whole different way and see that same progression with one ingredient. It's the same thing. And that's the reason why I started the book with collard greens. Yeah. And the book is set up in a way that I love, which is that it's set up by ingredient. So there is yeah. a chapter about what do you do with collard greens, and you talk about having these sort of bounties, and that's how food grows, right? Correct. The, the collard green, you know, I, I'm a member of a CSA here. I mean, I don't, I don't have the luxury of having a garden in right. Brooklyn. <laughs> but, you know, there's going to be a day where there's like 
tons of collard greens. And then it's like, well, what do I do with those? Correct. Right? And your book is set up in a way that I can just look to the collard green recipe and there's all these ideas. Right? And, and, then, and, not only there, and then it refers to other ways, you know, other ingredients in the book that you yep. can also help yourself out. And right now it's, it's terrific time of year, strawberry season. Yeah. And just seeing the berry recipes. Uh, we um, did the book launch yesterday and had the uh, blueberry fry pies. And, and I'm so proud to see that in, in this book launch that I've had all other people, I didn't make one recipe out of the book. Everyone else made them, and they work in that fried pie yesterday. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's great. So let's let's talk a little bit about, about recipe development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have not yet. I, I go to Atlanta about once a year. I have not yet had the pleasure of eating at any of your restaurants. But are there any – are the recipes in the book or any of those dishes that are served in the restaurants? I I think different versions of the yeah. dish. You know, of course, when we're making things for, for masses of, of, of people – you know, scale and size change, but pimento cheese is basically the same <laughs> recipe sure. that's in the book. Uh, we cook the collard greens the exact same way. Yeah. You know, so it really just depends on, on scale and size. The uh, shrimp, uh, we that was a dish that I did in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, at a Five Diamond restaurant of one of forty-two in the world. The the grit crusted shrimp with yeah. the with the grit croutons, and to you know to have a dish that was recognized as one of the best dishes at that time. And be in a five diamond, you know, environment, but you can actually still make it home. Really means that soul can bridge the gap between fine dining and just casual dining and eating at home as well. Yeah, totally. And then you have, you know, there, there's like what I what looks to me like almost like a secret section in the back of the book, mm-hmm. where there's like a couple of recipes for things that didn't really fit into the rest, but you felt compelled to include. And one of my favorites there mm-hmm. is the pickled mushrooms. Pickled mushrooms, man, and I got that from my mom. My mom was in, you know, she loved mushrooms. I mean, that was was her her. Thing. Thing, but always bought too much, you know, <laughs> because of her, her love of them. And my dad, again, in a frugal way, wouldn't wouldn't want to get rid of them. So we just pickled them. It yeah. was just a natural thing. He would just boil a little bit of vinegar, uh, salt, pepper, some pickling spice, and put it in the refrigerator. And we would just, you know, have them as snacks. We, we'll put them on sandwiches, things like that. So I, it, it's, it's just a part of being a kid all over again. And I want to share <laughs> that that part of the story yeah. as well. I mean, you know, and, and as someone who is a, you know, a very successful chef and, and working in lots of restaurants, I also love that you include things that are so simple. I mean, the recipe for rice with butter and black pepper. Man. I mean, like, I read that recipe and I thought to myself, man, I want to make that for dinner tonight because <laughs> right. it's easy, right? It's a weeknight. I know I'm going to have to get dinner on the table pretty quick. I do a lot of the cooking in my house. Right. And, and I mean, I just look at that and I was like, God, I can just tell that's going to, I mean, that with you know, some roast chicken or something on the side. I mean, it's just going to be incredible. I mean, that dish, um, understanding the culture again of home, that my dad's family came out of Louisiana's, my mom's family came out of the Carolinas. So rice was a big prevalent thing in our household. And my auntie Florence, she knew I loved rice as a kid. And, 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 you know, and she was a big jokester. So one time she's cracking jokes while we're eating at the table. And I started laughing and rice starts coming out <laughs> my nose and all my orifices because I'm laughing so hard. And just the simple way of butter, you know, salt and pepper with rice. It's about that childhood memory that makes food absolutely delicious. And every time I see that, that dish and I turn that page, it takes me so many places as, as a kid. And it's a wonderful uh, enjoyment to share that with everyone. Awesome. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And when we come back, I want to talk uh, about a couple more of the recipes that I identified that I can't wait to make. I'm Damon Bolte, co-host of the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. 
This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman and woman. This whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in a copper pot still, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. I'm very particular about the whiskeys that I choose to put on my back bar. I like things that go against the grain. And I need things to stand out. I need to have a narrative to talk to my customers and my friends and my staff about the different things that we carry. So the next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, like Grand Army or Moria Margo, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. Learn more at thesexton.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Todd Richards. His new book, Soul, just came out recently, and we were talking earlier about how soul is a four-letter word, and uh, in this case, it's, you know, we're, we're going down the, down the rabbit hole, I think, a little <laughs> bit. Um, so there was another recipe in the book that really caught my eye, which was your beet-cured trout. Yes. And I'm really interested, I mean, I, I've seen, I've made a lot of gravlocks in my mm-hmm. life, and I've done curing, and I've used beet juice in things, mm-hmm. and I've made beet pickled eggs, but you use beet powder in yeah. that recipe. Well, beet powder is, is one of those things I think provides a little bit more earth. It's really concentrated form of beets and gives this beautiful hue and color to the, you know, to the trout as well. And, and I think the importance about it, too, is that people eat with their eyes. And understanding that, that beets are one of those foods that people will just instantly go away from or they instantly mm. love. But when you taste it in the context of with fish, it brings balance to the dish. And that's really what I want to do using the beet powder, bring some balance. Because, you know, you have plenty of salt there and yeah. everything else. And allowing that earthy quality to come through is really accentuates the, the, the quality of the fish. It reminds me of, a, of like Russian cooking. It, like it is. beets and fish. Yeah. And you'd have it with herring. I think... I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna totally like butcher the the translation of this, but I think that there, there's a dish that's like um, it's like herring in like a hair jacket or something right. that is this Russian dish with like grated beets, grated beets, yeah, with, with the herring and, and uh, horseradish, and yeah. also that's you know speaks to we ate out so much as a kid. I mean, so you know, food wasn't there was no limits to the places. That we eat. I ate sushi when I was a kid because I love rice, yeah. you know, that much. Eating gravelocks um, because my dad, he worked, again, eight at night to eight in the morning. You can imagine what they could only eat overnight, yeah. you know, in, in downtown Chicago, between Chinatown, uh, Russian town, and Greek town, not too far away. So I was exposed to all those things, but they all seemed genuine to our upbringing in our home. Yeah. What brought you to Atlanta? Uh, a party, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, that, that's probably part of the story. I was transferring from University of Illinois. I got accepted to Georgia Tech. I went down there for a party and decided that Atlanta was the place for me. And I was really kind of burnt out on college. I was already in college. And between high school and college, I took college classes in high school for six years. Mm. And I wanted a new exploration because it felt like I was just doing something to be doing it. And I didn't really want to waste my dad's money, you know, anymore. And I just thought it was time to go venture out on my own and find that connection back to food. And my first job was in a grocery store as a butcher. And from that point, I never looked back. Well, we can thank Kroger for hiring <laughs> <Right>. you and for, <laughs> for bringing all of this to us today, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, music is also in the book. You, you suggest not only in a lot of the recipes do you suggest what to drink mm-hmm. with, the, with the items, uh, you suggest what to serve them with, but then you have peppered throughout, you have songs as Great. well. 
So, I mean, are, you know, I, I feel like chefs often, you know, are either, you know, their kitchens are silent mm-hmm. or they have music playing, which where, where do you fall? Uh, professionally, kitchens are silent. Um, at home, kitchens have, have music. Cool. And the reason why at restaurants, because we have to have a different type of cadence yeah. uh, there at home, I think you should be free. And, and and not constrained to time or place. Of course, that's a you know big thing to say when people have kids and everything. Yeah. But in the terms of celebration, how you celebrate each other, yeah. uh, you should not be restricted to the, to those uh, those paradoxes of time. And music will give you that natural cadence and natural rhythms in order to make things done. And I also think that cooking requires listening. If you cook bacon. Bacon will tell you when it's ready. You know, the bubbles get silent. It gets really quiet in the pan. And and the same thing if you fry chicken. Those two techniques run the same gamut in parallel. And so it's really about bringing the total sense to a delicious meal. Yeah, absolutely. So in the back of the book, there is a playlist. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole playlist. And now, is that is that published on Spotify? Or it is on Spotify. Awesome. Yeah, That's it, great. it is on Spotify. And I encourage people to listen to it because I listen to it whenever I cook, yeah. you know, or the family cooks at home. Um, are there any dishes in the book that you feel like, you know, so one of the things, so my... My wife and I have a, a business that she mostly runs called the Brooklyn Kitchen, mm-hmm. and we're a cooking school. Mm-hmm. And so we're teaching constantly teaching people about how to cook, and often we end up, you know, interacting with folks who you know might look at say, you know, this recipe for like liver and spring onions with crispy shallots and potato puree, and they'd mm-hmm. be like, well, I don't know if I can cook liver at home, mm-hmm. or I don't know if I can fry chicken at home. Do you have any any tips? For people, or are there any recipes in the book that you feel like are are ones that people should just dive in and approach because they're going to learn a lot while they do it? Well, because the book is divided by ingredients, I think you should follow the seasons, first of all. Uh, right now, we're coming upon tomato season, which I encourage everyone to go into that chapter and the onion chapter, and that's the reason why they run parallel to, e- yeah. to each other. And just start with slicing tomatoes. Just learning how to slice a tomato properly. And if you learn how to slice a tomato properly, you can actually learn how to fillet fish because it's the same kind of principle in cutting. So it's those kind of, of nuances that people are like, wow, well, I never imagined I can fillet a fish. Well, you know, if you can slice a tomato and it's just even all the way around, then you can certainly have the same skill set to, to cut a piece of fish. That's a, that's a, that is an awesome, it's an excellent tip. Um, so are there any, is there anything in this book that you think those of us in the Northeast are going to have a hard time finding? I mean, you know, I think, I think, I mean, the farmer's markets in New York are great and we get lots of stuff. The Mm -hmm. one that concerns me, not concerns me, but like the one that I saw very early on, there's a wonderful photograph in the beginning of the book, uh, of a melon stand. Oh yeah. A sign that says. Well, so that melon stand is actually about a mile from my house. That says yellow meat melon sold here. Correct. And it's spray painted on a giant piece of Wood, right. and I love. I mean, I just love the way it looks. Mm-hmm. But I don't think of yellow meat melon as being something I we get yellow meat watermelons. But I feel like it's not a specific thing here in the Northeast. I, I, I think that well, melons are 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 not just one color. First of all, of course, just like carrots and cauliflower. You know, getting people to eat uh, purple cauliflower. <laughs> you know, ten years ago was the hardest thing in the <laughs> right, world to do. Right. Now everyone <laughs> wants to do it because it's cool and and it's novel. Certain thing about purple potatoes. Well, finding yellow meat, uh, watermelon, gives you so much freedom. 
to explore, to walk around the market, to ask, to meet your produce person at the store, say, hey, do you carry yellow meat watermelons? And he said, well, only on this day do we have them. I said, great, I'm going to come back on this day. And you know what? Maybe, uh, do you have Himalayan sea salt? You know, can you bring that in for me as well? And it gives you so much freedom to explore and to appreciate other cultures. And then your kids, you know, get to see a world in a whole different place. And that's what soul food does. It allows you to see things in a whole different place. At home, uh, in your pantry, what are, what are some of your favorite things to keep around? I mean, I assume it's vast, right? I mean, I assume you've got lots and lots of stuff in there, but like... I have a lot of stuff. Uh, lots of times we get free gifts when we do all these parties for people and stuff like that. I mean, I have so much vanilla in the house right now. It's great. <laughs> you know, it's, it's insane. But quite honestly, I just always gravitate to salt and pepper to, to begin with, with everything. And then start adding other spices depending on what I'm cooking. So it's, if it's fried or grilled or smoked, you know, the chili powder, the cumin, all those things. Uh, rice and grits are always, always there. Uh, I think the most unique uh, type of ingredients we have is like truffle salt and, mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. Yeah. But nothing that any person, you know, couldn't purchase on their own. Sure. I mean, I, to your point about if you knew how to slice it, if you know, learn how to slice a tomato, you can fillet a fish. Mm-hmm. The same thing is true if you learn how to how to properly season with salt and pepper. Correct. That's where you got to start. And there's so much variability just within that. I, I mean, mean it, different it's... kinds of salt. If you're talking, I mean, I just just yesterday, I I found a, a gift that I've been brought from someone from Japan of this very specific kind of sea salt mm-hmm. that almost tastes you know and i think it may be because it probably had little tiny fish in it when they Mm -hmm. were drying out the water but it tastes a little bit like fish sauce but it's not it's just sea salt right but it's very specific and so i i found this this gift i thought oh i forgot i even had this i need to start using it right because i want to celebrate it i want to use it but it's sea salt but it's different from every other sea salt i have i just tell everyone when you buy spices buy them in small quantities and, and use them uh freely but you don't want to have a big vat of some spice sitting there that's you know, evaporating, flavor evaporating to the <laughs> right. air. And you wonder why, well, why wasn't it this, you know, as good as it was before? Well, all the aroma is gone already. So. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to eat in Atlanta? Wow, that's a great question. I have so many friends at so many restaurants. So. I don't mean to put you on the spot, <laughs> right. like you have to choose one. but <laughs> I, I usually uh, gravitate uh, to very simple places. Uh, like Bread and Butterfly, which is at Emmon Park. I have uh, Richard Southern Fry, which is in Crock Street Market, which yep. is not far from there. Uh, I'll go see my friends because it's the only time we get to see each other. So going to see Hector Santiago over at Super Pan or Guy Wong, or if we want fine dining and really want to dress up and be fancy, go see Jerry Cascala at Aria. These are really just fascinating personalities, and you can see it in their food. And I think that's really where the Atlanta landscape is really blossoming right now because you're seeing personality in food. Yeah, and I mean, and Atlanta, I think is I mean, Atlanta's a great city. It's you know, it's growing, been growing super fast. Most definitely. Um, um, over the past 10 years or so, but I, I feel like I, I get down to Atlanta once or twice a year, and every time I'm there, I have a good meal yeah, somewhere. I, mean, I agree 100%. Yeah, it's a, it's a great place. And uh, you're going to be back in Chicago soon? Yes, yes. We, we're heading to Chicago, which is going to be a feat of its own. I, I have so many people that uh, are, want to come by for the book launch. I like it. This place may not be <laughs> <laughs> big enough. <laughs> it may not be big enough. We're actually going to have two dinners and two talks. Uh, we originally planned to have one, but now we're going to have four events. So oh, wow. Well. 
that's awesome. Yeah. And Chicago, too. I mean, another just amazing, amazing Food city. city. I mean, growing up there and taking that kind of Midwestern uh, punctuation back to the South and incorporating to the dishes I make is really, especially when it gets to corn and, and things like wheat and using, you know, Faro has had this big craze, but yeah. Faro was big in Chicago in the <laughs> 70s and 80s as well. Sure. Um, anything else uh, on the horizon for you? Uh, you know, I mean, the book obviously is a big deal. Just just launched yesterday. Um, and then, I mean, do you have any other restaurant projects coming up? I, I do. You know, it seems like we always have another project, you know, in the works some yeah. somehow. I'm really interested in, in re, uh, reopening a barbecue place in Atlanta called Anderson's Barbecue. Oh, yeah. We operated for 45 years. And we just went through some permitting to get the zoning changed so we can actually see if we can get it open. Uh, Chili from TLC, that was one of her first jobs. Oh, know? wow. And And really looking at classic uh, African-American restaurants that either close or about to close or maybe the owner is, is, is you know, in their 70s and they don't want to do it anymore and their sure. family don't, don't want to take it over. Because the legacy in food, one reason why soul exists is because I wrote down recipes. Yep. A lot of times we don't write down recipes sure. and, and this whole legacy in food we don't know anything about. And to be at a point where I can help preserve our legacy and food and also bring into the modern context into the future is something I look forward to doing. I mean, that's, I, you know, I commend you for that. I think that that's a, I think that's a really great idea. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it is important and, and a lot of what chefs do in the modern age is to put their own personal stamp on things and to sort of create new and people get bored at one restaurant and they go and they open another one. But I love the idea of helping to preserve history while looking towards the future. I, we look at other cultures that have done it successfully. Certain Jewish culture has done it. We look at the uh, immigrants that come over from Asia and they how they work together. The Indian culture has done it. So I think yeah. it's the best practice that we can learn as African-Americans in this country is to say, you know, these people are successful for doing this because of what? And a lot of time is they start with preserving the history and then they work together to get the job done and then move forward into the modern context. And letting that not disappear and, and really yeah. and, and, and letting it not be a pressure of either life changes or real estate or whatever, whatever it may be. I mean, there are lots of reasons that restaurants close, that businesses Correct. go under, um, but being able to really maintain that and help usher that into a new era, I think it's a great idea. Recently, we had a restaurant uh, called Bankhead Seafood Clothes uh, that operated for 50 years in Atlanta, and no one knows why. And, mm. and, and to understand that this you know, family had this restaurant for 50 years in Atlanta throughout the old the Jim Crow era to the Civil Rights era to you know, Barack Obama being president, yeah. and all of a sudden they just closed, and no one knows why, is a story of, that happens in the African-American community you know, quite often, and we have to stem the tide of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I commend you, Todd, on, on everything you've done. I mean, I love the book uh, and the restaurants and, and, and everything else, and I, I look forward to sort of continuing to follow you and see what happens next. So, so do I. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Uh, it's, been, it's been really wonderful. So I like to close the show these days with a, with a little bit of a recipe, and we you know we just spent about half an hour talking about a lot of Todd's recipes. Um, so in thinking about 
in thinking about this episode and thinking about soul and thinking about this idea that I presented in the beginning about incorporating these other things into it, um, you know, I just, I wanted to share a recipe, you know, sometimes you come across a recipe and you know immediately that it will become part of your personal canon. And for me, a few weeks ago, um, I opened a book called Vibrant India by my friend Chitra Agrawal. Um, and she runs a, a wonderful company called Brooklyn Deli. Uh, and they make, Indian style achars um, here in Brooklyn. And so the recipe in her book, the book essentially basically was like fate fell open to this mung bean and quinoa dosa recipe. And I've been making it almost every week since I first found it. And I know it's going to, I'm going to make it all the time. The recipe is incredibly simple. Uh, it goes with basically everything you soak. The basic recipe is you soak a cup of mung beans, a half a cup of quinoa and a teaspoon of fenugreek seeds overnight drain them, and then you put them in the blender if you are lucky enough to have an Indian-style wet grinder, which I hope someday to have. If I can justify making this enough, maybe I can justify the cost. Uh, but you put them in the blender and blend them up with about two cups of water to make your basic batter. Uh, put in a small onion. Um, I've also done it using chives. I've done it using scallions. Some salt, some pepper, a little bit of ground cumin, some ground or some fresh ginger, and a pinch of hing, uh, also called asafoetida. Um, and that's really, you know, like this incredible secret uh, flavor enhancing ingredient that comes out of India. Um, and you just mix that all up into a batter and cook it on a medium hot griddle with, uh, either in some ghee, some butter, some olive oil. And it is just incredible. I mean, you can keep it in the fridge for a week at a time. You can pull it out, make one or make a ton of them. Um, you know, this week I started a double batch that I'm going to bring with me for a Memorial Day feast that I'm going to go to. And they're light in texture. They get a little bit bubbly, but they're filling. They're full of protein. Uh, so anyway, some some riff on that will be in my, in my personal canon forever, I think. Uh, dare I say it'll be part of my soul. So thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Vitor Hirsch for engineering this show. Uh, I encourage everybody to check out coming up this weekend um, on June 15th, 16th, and 17th, the Freak Flag Fest, which will be happening at the Brooklyn Kitchen. You can get more info at freakflag.info about that. It's going to be music and art and film and projection, and I'll be doing the food. We're doing a Father's Day brunch based on my and uh, Chef Andrew Gerson's Jewish upbringing here in New York, so you definitely don't want to miss that. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You should definitely check out Chef Todd's playlist on Spotify for when you're cooking at home, because I'll be doing that for sure. And you can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at The Foodballer. You can follow Todd on social media he is at chef t richards on twitter and on instagram he is chef todd richards and definitely make sure to check out his restaurants next time you're in atlanta take care Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.